2: you know we've generated a considerable increase in profit and revenue during the course of the year we reimagined our, our business and reimagining our business is something by the way we do just about every month if not every week around here so Nick take her away
1: first like many of you we are not surprised by this continued consolidation We expect these companies to monetize the value of their newly acquired titles via scripted and unscripted content. The sector should end up with four, maybe five players emerging, and the winners will largely be dependent on their IP. We've discussed in the past how one of the biggest acquisition drivers for streamers is live rights.
3: You know, the NIL program offers WWE more opportunity than any other brands who are partnering with these collegiate athletes because it is such a recruiting tool. Great.
1: Thank you. Stephen, just, just quickly on the uh, international large-scale events, wh- wh- why just limit it to two? Let, let's see how it looks in the next uh, couple of months. Thank you. We have, special, <laughs> we have a special pile driver ready for you from the other
4: side. <laughs> <laughs> I you're bet
0: you do. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Russellomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, February the 6th, 2022. It is early February. This is our first program of February, which means, which means... This is time. It's time for the look back on the prior. Well, not 12 months, but the, the entire year of 2021 for WWE. Joining me to do that is Chris Call. Hello. It's
5: good to be here. And yeah, Brandon, we have a jam packed episode as we're going to thoroughly break down the Q4 financials and 2021 financials of WWE and highlights from the earnings call. That was this past Thursday, including conversations about Peacock and percentages, conversations about the NIL program, uh, and much more, including uh, Stephanie chanting "We want pizza." So, mm-hmm.
0: yes, yes. Uh, this this is an episode that I will often go back and listen to through through the archives. Um, it's a. Uh, a lot of the old WrestleNomics radio episodes that are covering the full year annual report. So is it, is it clear that W does a quarterly report, right? But when they yes. do this one that covers the final quarter of the year, in SEC terms, they don't put out an a quarterly report for the final quarter. They put out an annual report. Um, and oftentimes in the past, this is where we've gone into in some pretty good detail and, and reflecting on the year that was in WWE finances. Um, so so this is uh this is this is a very permanent record that we're about to record here, Chris Call. Are you ready?
5: Never been more ready. <laughs> okay.
0: So uh, where shall we begin? I also completed a pro wrestling industry report for the third consecutive year uh, that you can get access to through Patreon and through PayHip. Uh, we'll, we'll plug that some more later. But that, as usual, consumed my January. And uh, maybe one of these days we'll go over some of the content uh, that is c- contained in that report. But WWE on Thursday in its uh, earnings report <clears throat> reported $1 billion. $95 million in revenue. That is the most ever uh, it has ever recorded. Revenue growth has been pretty consistent. Uh, however, growth in, oops, I my slides here. Growth in net income has been less, cons- it's been fairly consistent in the last few years. Uh, I, I prefer to look at net, net income as a profitability metric. Uh, there is no one metric called profit. There are various profit metrics. WB likes to uh, focus on adjusted EBITDA because it doesn't include stock compensation uh, and some other things. I'm not totally sure wh- why they do. they do that for comparability reasons. And I, I do believe it is what they focus on internally. But I focus on net income because that is the, the final measure of profit. After taxes and depreciation and amortization and stock compensation and what have you. And that measured in 2021 at $180 million, the most net income in any year in WWE history. Now, if you adjust that for inflation, though, um, they're, they're not as profitable as they were in the Attitude Era, right? If you adjust for inflation, isn't that right, Chris Gull? Uh no, they are still more profitable. Still, the attitude era. that can't no, but they were way more prop popular in the in the attitude era. How can that be?
5: Because we are in the the world of TV rights and large scale international events, Brandon, that oh. bring a lot of income in.
0: I'm so proud of you. That is exactly right. <laughs> WWE, as MJ from NJ pointed out, WWE is benefiting from the ultimate tailwind. They barely have to move forward and provide their own energy yes i know people at w work very hard at their jobs however they have an ultimate tailwind at their back in the form of live tv rights that are exploding in value over the last decade or so um so a good quarter for them i mean a good good report for them uh they beat on earnings so what does that mean uh they they had an eps I, I, I don't understand a lot of things about how the stock market works and, and the way that people break down the numbers, but they use this metric called EPS, which stands for earnings per share ratio, which is just the number of shares, which is about 76, 77 million. Uh, in this case, we're looking at diluted shares, which is like 80, 80 some odd million. You divide all the shares by the net income for the period, and you get the earnings per share ratio. So it's a way to measure profit, balancing for the number of shares that are in the company. Analysts expected that EPS number to be $0.52. They reported $0.76. In other words, they were a lot more profitable than the average analyst, stock analyst, expected. Now, stock analysts, they cover a lot of different companies. They don't spend uh, all their their day and night focusing on on WWE and other wrestling companies like I do. I was pretty close, $0.68. This is, uh, I don't know, this is the third quarter in a row where i was closer than the than the average stock analyst and i think i was higher than any of them as well at least according to my my automated Thomson reuters report that i get through e-trade um so uh they were they were beating on earnings now they beat on earnings the last three quarters as well and the stock did not respond as favorably as it did we'll get to that in a moment on revenue uh they were pretty close i i always see what i think are these automatically generated uh Articles from uh, from like places like Seeking Alpha where they say they beat on earnings, but they were short on revenue. I I don't know. They were like, you know, sixteen million dollars short on revenue out of three hundred and ten. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Um, So everybody's pretty close on revenue because revenue is pretty easy, relatively speaking, to anticipate. What's hard to anticipate is what everything costs, and that's that's where you get profit from, of course. Uh, Stock price. Uh, I think on, on on Friday morning after. Some analysts' reports came out, is what I'm guessing happened here. I, I have seen the JP Morgan and the North Coast and the Morgan Stanley report. I don't know if there are any others. But uh, Friday morning, the stock price did jump by 10% on the day. Uh, there wasn't any strong aftermarket trading that I saw while the you know just after the report came out, which was Thursday at about 5, but by the morning. The stock price was back up over fifty dollars, um, and I don't know. Can we can we pull this up here? Are 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 you uh, investing in W stock, Chris I am not currently. No, you're not currently investing in W stock. I've never invested in W stock, um, but I do have things like Netflix. i a previous with- investor, but no longer. Yes. Uh, do you have any plans to initiate any such positions in the next uh, seventy two hours? I do not. Okay, so if we look at uh I just wanna look at you know what did the what did the stock do relative to sort of recent history they're at fifty one dollars at the close of the market on Friday, so they are higher than they were a year ago at this time, which was where they were at seventy or i'm sorry forty seven dollars I'm curious if i go go so far back as to say you know what was the stock price on the day before Barrows and Wilson were fired it was let's see it was. 59. Uh, Google is not showing me every single day, but about, a, about a week before Barris and Wilson were fired on January 24th, 2020, before the pandemic, the stock price was $59. And we s- briefly seen, do you get that high? Uh, wall street bets helped, <laughs> uh, in, in late October, it did get up to $60, but it, the stock price is still below where it was just before Barry and Wilson left. Um, We'll get into some more depth about why the why stock is priced the way it is. Um, but we'll, we'll get into some detail here. We're going to go through a number of audio clips and things of that nature. Um, one of the big highlights, though, was Peacock, wasn't it?
5: Yes, it was. Uh, I mean, because this year of 2021, well, last year, was uh, – did we we have Peacock in every quarter, correct? It was in
0: late quarter one, Q1? So the, d- the deal was made in January. The deal went into effect yes. in, in March – so okay. that was it. That was all in Q1. So what we had in Q1 was a lot of upfront payments from from NBCU to WB for the transfer of the IP. I'm guessing that was because of the transfer of the library. Um, so we have a really heavy network line in Q1, and it's been not as heavy ever since.
5: Yeah. So this was the year of the peacock, and uh, we got a lot of numbers with that percentage numbers, and it was a highlight of
0: the earnings call. Yes. Uh, just for reference. So the Peacock deal only affects people in the U S as people internationally listening may know, uh, no longer can we in the U S subscribe to the network as a standalone service. Uh, you have to subscribe to it through Peacock where you get it for either $5 or commercial free for $10 a month. But the peak in the U S for subscribers was back in Q2 2018 where the U.S. peaked at 1.3 million subscribers. Q4 2020, last quarter that we have a reported quarter for the W network subscribers, it was 1.1 million. So to give you some idea of what the maximum U.S. audience was, it was 1.1 million at the end, 1.3 million for WrestleMania in 2018. Okay. But Nick, Nick Khan, as we kind of expected, gave us some percentage differences for what, certain PLEs did versus their their uh, 2019 or pre-pandemic edition.
5: Yeah, and we'll actually run this down. Uh, 2021 on Peacock versus 2019 on WWE Network. For Money in the Bank, it was up 25%. SummerSlam up 30%. Extreme Rules, which was in September, up 20%. The uh, Saudi event up 75%. And he said our 2019 event there, but there were two. Um, Survivor Series, almost 25%. Royal Rumble 2022, 45% against 2020. There was 3.5 million-plus paid Peacock subscribers have watched WWE content since the move in March. And uh, that does align with Matt Baloney's From the Puck report in
0: January. Mm-hmm. So his report was not baloney.
2: <laughs>
0: anyway... Um. <laughs> um, very interesting.
5: I'd still like to see hard numbers. I'm not sure if like you were we able won't. to see those, but we actual won't. hard numbers <laughs> of <laughs>
0: We, we <laughs> won't be seeing any hard numbers. No. Um but uh this is encouraging, right? I mean, I, I heard a lot of people say when this deal was made that look, they're they're sort of abandoned and there was no clean transition, right? Like I think we're both W network subscribers at the end. Yes. Yep. We didn't it's not as if we suddenly had Peacock accounts. We ha- they they shut down our account, and we had to manually, deliberately go into Peacock and create an account and and give them our credit card information and tell them to charge us five dollars or ten dollars a month, uh, so we could become Peacock subscribers and get access to the WPLEs and and library content. Um, so a lot of skepticism, at least among this sort of wrestling fan podcast culture, about. You know they're they're not going to convert all 1.1 million. Well, I don't know if they, if they did. The Baloney Report, the <laughs> Matt Baloney Report, did did say that uh they they converted. I forget what it what it was. It was it was it was about like a million or something like that. Um, but uh, but look, the viewership of these pay per views, which they are no longer called premium live events, is substantially higher uh, by by double digits. I, and I don't think. He was skipping over any here, right? Um, were he, he did cover Backlash last time. So WrestleMania, yeah. WrestleMania, there was one before WrestleMania in 2021 that they did. I do, they might have given us numbers. But anyway, so there's WrestleMania, which I believe they have called the most viewed WrestleMania ever. There's what was right after WrestleMania was Backlash. And then I think Money in the Bank and then yeah. SummerSlam. You can you can check you checking a pay per view yeah. uh, schedule. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Extreme Rules in September, the Saudi event in October, Survivor Series in November, no event, no no ple in December, and then Royal Rumble in January and Day One as well. Um, he called Day One on the call. Uh, he being Nick Khan the. If you don't know, the WD president and chief revenue officer called, called the called the day one a huge success because of, you know, uh, they, they anticipated a, you know an opening in the sports calendar. They turned out to be right. And he called it more highly viewed than any December pay-per-view in the W network history. So and this is this is what's the lowest delta here is plus 20 percent. Um, can you confirm that they have not left out any pay-per-view here?
5: No, uh, because they uh, let's see here, yeah, no, because they canceled TLC for that day one event, so yeah, it doesn't look like that they left anything out, yeah. Um,
0: Hell in a Cell, mm.
5: actually, yeah,
0: true, maybe. maybe uh, I, I would guess if they did leave it, they did leave Hell in a Cell out. What, what month was Hell in a Cell in
5: June? June. Yeah, um, at least that's what the one CBS article I'm reading. So I'm just double checking on that. I mean, that would, yeah, it was June 20th, 2021.
0: That might have. And I don't want to say too too definitively here because that was June. They they might have mentioned it in the previous call. Anyway, if, if, they, if they are leaving any of them out, I'm, I'm guessing it's just because they're not as impressive as as the others. The lowest number we've got here is 20 percent. So more people are watching this um, and maybe. Hmm.
5: That was the last event at the Thunderdome, the last premium live event at the Thunderdome. So.
0: I see. I see. And what we're looking at here, beginning with Money in the Bank, are all events that have happened since the return to touring because Money in the Bank yep. was the second event back on the road uh, after the smackdown. So this is, this is good. Um, I've seen some people, including uh, Brandon Ross from Lightshed, talk about how this is a good thing because there's more people watching this content and maybe that has a downstream effect to, if you're if you're watching this, there's more likelihood that people are going to be engaged in the weekly content and Raw and SmackDown, and that helps fortify their TV ratings, helping their TV ratings helps their live TV rights value going forward. Uh, maybe that's happening. Um, the thing about these these premium live events though is that we've seen pay per view. Is this product that's proved to be quite demand inelastic in terms of the price? J- just like the cable bundle, you can raise the price on these cable customers, especially the older ones, and they're never going to cancel unless you really become reckless. And we we saw at the end, you know, pay per views were priced at about sixty five dollars. AEW is still in the pay per view business. It's my assessment that you know, Barrios and Wilson the former co-presidents who were behind the, the, the W network strategy that they miscalculated the product. They misunderstood the product somewhat, the pay-per-view product in that it w- was not a, a product that had as much as, as many extra customers to capture by lowering the price as they anticipated. I believe too, that it was not helped by the creative over the years, that it was launched, you know, it was launched in, in, in early 2014 and it stalled by 2018. And I think the creative got worse over that time. Uh, and we saw that in a lot of consumer metrics too. We saw ticket sales, merchandise sales, product licensing, web search, all those things go down uh, over those years from 2017 onward. So I think, you know, the W network, they believe that they were going to capture three to four million subscribers worldwide. They got about halfway there. Uh so to I don't know, I I, I guess I still sort of, you can't go back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. But I think that these events are being under monetized. Uh but this is the that's sort of revisionist history though. I again, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so you might as well sell these events to a much wealthier partner, NBC Universal. NBC Universal is a Something like a two hundred billion dollar market capital company. What's WE's market capital, Golo?
5: Um, now I gotta look it up. I didn't have I didn't have that handy. I have a lot of stuff handy today, including the definition of OBIT and Ebida. Oh, good.
0: good. <laughs> um, this is impromptu, WWE. Russellomics Jeopardy. What is WE's market capital? Uh, three point nine two billion. Exactly, just under four billion. So. Comcast is whatever 200 divided by four is a lot, a lot, a lot bigger a company than WB is. So they have resources at a far greater scale. They can afford to overpay now for the sake of the investment in streaming, which is what they're doing with Peacock. Um, And that's what, that's the deal that Nikon made anyway. So that's what's happening with Peacock. And that's, that's a positive story. Um, I expected a more negative story come out of live events, but, a lot more positive than I expected. I was expecting live events to report an $8 million loss. I was way wrong. They reported a $1.4 million uh, operating income. They were profitable in their live events division. And their live events division, even the exclude, of course, of course, the pandemic era was was not profitable for them. They didn't run any ticket to live events during it. But even uh, in the last quarters before the uh, pandemic, in 2018 Q3, in 2019 q3 in 2019 q4 all pre-pandemic quarters live events division by itself lost money lost uh in in 2019 q3 lost four million dollars uh in the in the other two quarters I mentioned they lost one million dollars um so I was expecting another loss but they posted a 1.4 million dollar gain in in operating income uh that's driven by <clears throat> 48 live events in the quarter averaging 5,200 paid attendees. So it was pretty close there. What I underestimated were the ticket prices. And maybe I was overestimating, I have to look, maybe I was overestimating the cost too. Um, But that's that's giving us a pretty good idea, I think going forward of of what WWE's average attendance is gonna be like. And if you look at, it is down from the last uh, pre-pandemic Q4, 2019, where they did 5,800. So one could say the holiday tour was not as successful. They ran a similar number of events too. In 2019 Q4, they ran 50 events in North America. In this quarter, they ran 48 live events. So it's a very similar number, lower average attendance. Uh, So so of course, lower total attendance with two fewer events and an average attendance that is 6,000, I'm sorry, 600 lower. So there's that. that. That aligns with my growing narrative that W is having increasing challenge in trying to get consumers to pay directly for its product. Peacock viewership is up. People are subscribing to Peacock, not just for the W Network, but for Lord knows what. That's on Peacock, the Olympics, the office, whatever. Uh, international attendance, by the way, in the quarter was down. Uh, they ran far fewer events internationally. They only ran nine versus 20 in 2019. Uh, I'm sure that's pandemic related. They had a much more limited international tour, where I think they just went to the UK again. But the average attendance was down. Despite running fewer events, the average attendance was down to 3,700 in Q4 versus the Q4 of 2019, where it was up to 4,300. <clears throat> of course, that doesn't include the the Saudi Arabia crown jewel event. Um, So as I digress to my, my point, I, I, th- I think there's some challenges with getting people to pay for this product. It sounds like, I mean, I, don't, I haven't studied this, but it sounds like a narrative that I've heard around impact, um, or, or total nonstop action. It was, as it was once called where their sort of their ratio of television viewership to what they were able to, to get on pay-per-view was yep. quite a disparity. Um, Lots of people, maybe a million people or so, are willing to watch their TV program that was part of a bundle. That that you know you have cable for all sorts of reasons. If if wrestling disappeared, you would still have cable, but that was not converting very much to pay per view. Um, WWE is a way bigger scale, and there are a lot of differences there. But people are willing to watch the train wreck, but not pay for it. Is is sort of what I think is happening here. Um, Average ticket price was in this quarter was $63 uh, in North America. North America here refers to the U S and Canada, $63 compared to 61 in 2019's Q4. So that sounds like inflation. Um, Average ticket price. This is, this is good to know too, for the sake of understanding the business going forward, you know, how much had the ticket price gone up? Uh, We have Q3 where, where the average ticket price was $75 in that tremendous Q3 that they had in the return to touring Q3 is July, August and September,
1: yeah.
0: which is the first three months of the return to touring. Uh, the average ticket price in Q2 was a hundred and some odd dollars. Cause it only contained WrestleMania. That's off, off the chart here that we're looking at here on YouTube. Um, so this is, a good indication of what it's going to be like going forward, both, both in terms, you know, this was really an informative quarter in terms of understanding what their average attendance is going to be like in terms of understanding what their um, average ticket price is going to be like. And, and in terms of understanding their consumer products business a little bit better. Again, this, the Q3 and Q2 are anomalies. Q2 only had WrestleMania in it. So it had, you know, a tremendous merchandise sales per capita. Q3 had pent-up demand benefits. Average uh, merch spend per person, per paid ticket, was $14 in Q3 in the pent-up demand quarter. It's down to twelve thirty nine, dollars And that is that is up substantially from where they were in the last pre-pandemic Q4, where it was $9. Now up to 12 12, almost $12.5. So that's informative going forward. And then what, what we really saw? Uh, did you remember this? gull? like when they went off the road. When you go off the road for the pandemic, you no longer have merch stands to sell merch at. Yep. But online orders uh, really grew. Yes,
5: and 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 that was uh, I believe Frank Riddick made a comment in the in the earnings call that with being on the road that and you know uh, the pandemic spending slowing down is why we they saw online. Purchases
0: go down in Q4. And and that's that's an occurrence that I I can't really wrap my head around. That online merchandise sales offset, not completely, but almost completely, offset the loss of venue merchandise. I guess I, I view venue merchandise sales as this sort of spontaneous purchase that people don't plan for. So... I don't see uh, how, how online merchandise orders could have replaced that because it's not as if you, you go, OK, I'm, I'm going to buy a, a Roman Reigns shirt, but I'm going to wait until, until the event to do it. I, I don't feel like that's a common thing. And then oh, the pandemic happened, so we're not going to go to the live event. So uh, I'm going to order some, some merchandise online instead. I just, I just can't wrap my head around that. But the numbers bear that out. That something resembling that happened. Um, And now, with the pandemic not over, but touring back on the road, uh, orders in Q4 were 164,000 down from 234,000 in 2020 Q4. Again, 164 down from 234. uh, And actually, in Q4, so usually we see a Q4 uh, increase relative to the other quarters, probably because of Christmas and the holidays. Q4 2019 was 225,000 orders with no pandemic. So almost concerningly down in Q4 of this year, or when I say this year, I mean 2021. Um, again, maybe supporting this, this narrative that do people want to go out of their way to pay for this product. I don't know. But uh, you look at the average revenue spent, That's that's been pretty strongly consistent back in 2019. It was in the high $40 range. And then, since the pandemic, it's it's it went up early in the pandemic to fifty dollars high in the fifty dollars per order, and then at the beginning of this year, sixty dollars, seventy dollars in Q two with WrestleMania in there. I don't know if that's if WrestleMania is relevant, but but in the in the seventies and sixties, and here uh, in Q four, in the hot, you know, sixty seven dollars was the average order price revenue per online order. So take that for what you will. Is it is it the the replica belts? There's no more Bray Wyatt. I think they're still monetizing Bray Wyatt, though, right?
5: When I was at the uh, live event in December that was here in Buffalo, New York, Sasha Banks T-shirts were heavily pushed, as well as Roman Reigns shirts and Drew McIntyre shirts. So And they had that where you have now where you can just order it from your seat and somebody will bring it to you other than just standing in a uh, merchandise line.
0: Right. Well, that, that that's a good idea because that's time consuming. You don't want to miss the show, and lines can get long. Um, <clears throat> yeah. How how do you do that? Do you like go onto an app? Go on to like a yes. app or something. Yeah,
5: yeah. They have like a. I think it's on WB Shop, but like it's a. I think there's a live event tab or something, and you, and all that. I can't remember exactly because I didn't do it, but I remember them giving you. Byron, Byron Saxton was giving
0: instructions how to do it. So. You, you didn't do it because you hate WWE, and uh, you, you got in for free, in fact.
5: I, I did get it for free. I had a friend that had a couple free tickets. Uh, but, no, I, I, I don't hate WWE. I just uh, I don't buy a lot of wrestling T-shirts. And if I do, they're usually Legend T-shirts mm. or the WrestleNomics T-shirt that you can actually get. Uh, <laughs> uh, you didn't at, buy that either. I sent it to you.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was given that free, but I would buy it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um so that, I don't know. That that's interesting to see how these economics played out through the, the pandemic and how they're changing as touring is back on the road. Um yeah. So product licensing revenue. What does product was, the product consumer products licensing revenue line consist of? I'm gonna ask you, but I'm gonna review the three there's three revenue lines that they report within consumer products, which are which we just talked about venue merchandise yes. and e commerce. And e-commerce; mm-hmm. those are obviously online merchandise sales. But then there's a third one: product um, licensing. Product licensing. What does that consist of? What are the What are the big products in in that category?
5: So that would be video games. That would be action figures. Absolutely. That would, yeah, and all all the other stuff they put their name on. Um, and we had two super chats. Tim, we're going to leave your super chat towards the end because it's a bigger topic, uh, but we will address it. Uh, but MJ uh, had a super chat of. Uh, online average spend probably higher than in person. So it definitely
0: is. Um, you yeah. know, it's, it's by, by m- multiples. Well, per person, this is per head, right? But it probably still is right. Um, this is per person. So this, this is including people who didn't buy any merchandise at all. This, uh, w- what was in Q4, $12 and 39 cents. So about $12, almost 12 and a half. um, you know, we don't know they don't report the number of venue merch sales um, like the number of sales so hard hard to break down for sure but I, but I would agree with you there uh, So what I wanted to say was this product licensing revenue line from 2017 onward had been an annual decline. Don't blame it on the pandemic because it was down in 2018 and it was down in 2019 uh, it had been in 2017. Up to $52 million, down to $46 million in 2018, down to $43 million in 2019, and in 2020, $42 million. Back up to $52 million in this quarter. Um, hard to imagine why uh, for me, really. There's no video game yet, yet they still made made it to $52 million. I, I don't know if, if action figure sales are through the roof. Or there's some other deals here. So this was you got to remember
5: 2021 during the pandemic here was the year of the trading cards. And I don't know how much we don't have breakdowns, but people WB trading cards were one of the things people were buying, hoping that they would go up into value. I remember watching these unboxing and it was mostly Pokemon cards and 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 basketball and football cards. But uh, we're, we're not talking about cards.
0: NFTs here, right? Huh? What's up? We're not talking about NFTs here, right? Because No, their, their, we're, their talking, sales, we're talking I, legit collector trading cards. Because they're NFT sales at this point. I'm not even sure if they would put, put NFTs in here or if they would put them in media. But any, I guess they would put them here because that sounds like a cons- consumer purchase. But anyway, NFTs, they've only done Undertaker and John Cena. The John Cena ones were, were not good. The, the Undertaker sales were all sold out, but we're still talking about a pretty limited inventory. So they're going to do NFTs. They're going to do an NFT marketplace probably this year, maybe soon. Um, but yeah. Trade trading cards.
5: Just yeah, I mean it's probably a small piece of the pie, but I know that was a trend in 2021, and towards the end of 2020 was trading cards. Okay, the popularity of buying them, hoping you get a rare card that's worth a lot of money. And
0: were there especially high numbers of like action figure releases or something?
5: I I I, I don't know. I believe that <laughs> I believe 2021 though was the release of the Zodiac figure. <laughs> Um, it could have been 2020 but yeah I mean I'm not 100% sure on that they would they consider the online games in here yes yes mobile games console games the mobile games yeah like the mobile games I know they they bragged about
0: that in the earnings call Stephanie did mention that uh... and they
5: did say the trading card deal with Panini as well Mm -hmm. which was last year
0: yes Um, I believe they they left tops right yes I believe yeah there were tops yeah and then Tops was just acquired by It Escapes Me. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I don't know if the Panini deal is in effect yet. Have they put out any cards in, with under the Panini brand yet? Um,
5: I'm not sure. Uh, you know, some of the is uh, MJ does bring up the DraftKings deal, too. I don't know if that would count on this.
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's media. That's is that media ads and sponsors or would that be consumer products? Um, not sure, but so they do in their quarterly report to the extent that they, they did put in their earnings press release that it was attributed to, uh, I would have to look. They, they didn't call out anything in particular. Um, it was, I think they, they attributed the increase in the consumer products division to the increasing product licensing sales. So that could be anything within product licensing, but as you point out, um, Anytime you, you put up an action figure for one of the many personas uh, portrayed by Ed Leslie, you can expect uh, a lot of activity around that. So Ed Leslie action figures, I know, are a big hit with many people. So um,
5: uh, Just to uh, – the Panini deal actually starts this year. Uh, some other things that were brought up in the chat, though was the DLC packs for the WWE 2K Battlegrounds video game, um, you know, and some fanatic stuff too. So, I mean, they – they definitely merchandise a lot of license, a lot of stuff. We are in the Nick era of IP. So,
0: mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I, I, I was saying, I think with John Pollock and then maybe with MJ too, in the, in the, in the, preview that I, I see this, this, this is an area that Nikon can do a lot to add incremental growth to with, with all these deals. um, So th- that's part of it. But what they also mentioned here too, which I don't think we're going to mention elsewhere is he mentioned 12, over a dozen scripted and unscripted uh, series or pieces of content that they're going to announce soon. So a lot, a lot of um, teases of announcements here. Um, I wonder too, what was brought up to you by someone who I was talking to is what, what's Nick Khan's success from? What is his, uh, you know, I I imagine a lot of it is connections. He was a, he's an agent at CAA for a long time. And I'm sure he made a lot of important connections there. Maybe it's a lot of Nick Khan is able to get meetings that maybe nobody in, in, in WWE up to that, up, you know, up until he was there were able to get. Um, but it was it was just to me that, you know, maybe the success of the Notchka Khan, his sister, is what helps this a lot too. Not just that he's been a successful lawyer and talent agent by himself, but that maybe these two siblings have really built on each other's success. Uh, Ninashka Khan is a, is a successful TV producer, and uh, she is the creator, right, of, of the Young Rock series based on the life of Dwayne Johnson. So,
5: I, I was just going to say, I think when it comes to Nikon, Khan, it's marketability, right? Like, when you're an agent of somebody, you want to literally – how you want to squeeze as much profit out as you can of that individual. How can we market the individual in so many different things? And can they sponsor this? Can they do this? Can they do that? And I think that mindset is how we're seeing license deals that we've never seen before at WWE really outside the box stuff because Nick Khan is treating the WWE product. Like he's it's his client. And OK, well, well, you can do trading cards and you can do video games. And and, and I, I think that that's the reason why he's been so successful when it comes to these product licensing, because that he's treating it as it's a client to get the most out of. And we see like I mean, I didn't even know I had no idea that they had a stake in the Rowdy's places on ESPN, but he did bring that up uh, in the earnings call. Which now kind of makes sense because Kurt Angle is on one episode, and I see Paul Heyman's on the one that just aired, and Undertaker's going to be on one. You're so. talking
0: about the the Rousey's Places uh, ESPN Plus yeah. series, yes, yeah, um,
5: yeah. yeah. It's, it's I think it's called Rowdy's Places, and he called it Ronda's Places or something like that. I think it's called Rowdy's Places. Okay, Um but uh but it's supposed to be like a combat sports take on Peyton Manning's Peyton places, but it is very WB heavy. And he mentioned something about WB and executive producers and that. So, which is interesting because it's an ESPN property.
0: Right. Um, That's where I, I saw the clip of uh, it's, it's Ronda Rousey, Devon Dudley and Paul Heyman sitting in a ring in, in the yep. ECW arena discussing ECW. Uh,
5: That and, is the one episode I haven't watched. I've watched the others. Um, very interesting. If you're a mixed martial arts person, too, it's really good. Who, who have been her guests? Uh, she had um, Hoist Gracie and Rainier Gracie on the first one about the birth of MMA. Wow. Uh, she When she did the kickboxing by the Bay episode, she had Daniel Cormier, Cormier on there. Um, she had uh, Kurt Angle on an episode that was mostly about WWE, but a little bit about his amateur wrestling background. She had Data White on an episode where they showcased the UFC Apex. Hmm. Um, you know, so and and was and I, I know Ronda Rousey is a very controversial figure right now. I'm not saying my, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying uh, that I uh, approve of what she thinks. I just am an MMA fan, and on top of wrestling,
0: so it's just history. Learning this, has history she had right. anybody on to discuss conspiracy theories yet? Not, not, not yet. So. Okay. Uh, she
5: also, who's She had Larry Holmes
0: on uh, one about boxing, too. It was really good. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing here MJ in the chat helpfully points out uh, Tops was acquired by Fanatics. Uh, that makes oh, okay. Sense. Oh, okay. And, and, and Griffin mentions that there's downloadable content uh, in the 2K yeah. Battlegrounds game, uh, which was their arcade console game from not 2021, but 2020, I think. Um, so, anyway. Uh, moving on to this slide that we're looking at on YouTube uh, that is from their key performance indicators where they always update you, investors, on what the AVOD numbers are. What is AVOD, Chris Golo? What does that stand for?
5: Uh, I want to say that's audio, video on demand.
0: Ad-supported video on demand. Oh. So yeah. this, they give they give two metrics here. Global hours viewed. Time, amount of time people spent watching W content on ad sport platforms across the internet, and then the number of views. Number of views, I don't take as seriously because I think everybody measures a view on these platforms a little bit differently, and who knows what you know? Where are we talking about? One second, three seconds, ten seconds, thirty seconds? I don't know. I don't. I I look at our own analytics through YouTube, and I don't know what to make, what sense to make of views and how they are truly counted. But hours that's more even across platforms. T- time is time. Time is the ultimate unifier. Uh, and global hours viewed on AVOD platforms was down to 307 million hours in the quarter down tremendously from the prior quarter, the lowest it's been since Q1 of 2019. This is a, this is a, an area of new media that has grown tremendously for W over time. Um, but this is the lowest it's been in more than a year. They have these call out labels pointing at these quarters saying Q4, 2021 AVOD consumption was impacted by the absence of a premium live event in December, which presumably would coincide with an increase in activity here and the removal of full matches on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, there's still, it's not, it it almost makes it sound that they've stopped posting full matches on their platforms. But as I've been covering the YouTube data pretty closely, they're still definitely posting full matches. I don't know if they've taken down some full matches out of the archive, Um, but a lot of their seven, some like something like 70% of their views. I can't measure time, but I can measure views because those are publicly visible. Something like 70% of their views in a given period of time, are of content that is at least older than a week ago. So a lot of their, at least YouTube activity, is from stuff that is not new content. So maybe they're taking down old full matches for some reason. Maybe it's a Peacock thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um. So if we look at just the YouTube views, um, and just isolate that, this is based on data from social blade uh, that is down and it's been down. And maybe this is a pandemic effect too, just like sort of you know online merchandise sales were up in during the pandemic. Uh, we saw in, let's see here. It's been, it's been, you would expect it to be sequentially up just because this is a new form of media that people are adopting more generally. Uh, so I swatted out of Nat here. Uh, so it was up in 2020. It was way up in, in Q2, 2020 for billion YouTube views, up from 2.6 billion in the same quarter of 2019, up 4, 4.6 billion in Q3 2020, uh, 3.6 billion in Q4 2020. We're still in this non-touring pandemic era in Q1 of 2021, and it's up, up year over year. Now that's compared to a quarter where it was mostly not in the pandemic era, up to 3.7 billion. But then in Q2, uh versus the First full quarter of the pandemic goes down to three point three billion, down from four billion, and then it was down again three three billion, even down from four point six billion, and then in Q four down to two point three billion, which is basically even to what it was in twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering if YouTube is becoming a stable metric for them. I've I've given other uh, rants in the past about how there are different metrics that we can look at related to WWE fan engagement have different sort of maturity levels. Now I'm not talking about the maturity level of the people involved. I'm talking about the maturity of, of the form of, of product. So tickets are definitely, I don't know, the oldest form of of consumer product, right? Um, yep. Tickets have been around for centuries, at least a century in pro wrestling. So that's not a form of new adoption, right? Um, but TV ratings are an aging metric, I would say. People are doing, you know, people are watching linear TV less. The W network was a young metric. Maybe maybe was a young metric up up to when we stopped getting numbers for it at the end of 2020, despite those numbers being stagnant and somewhat down. YouTube is a young metric, at least up to this point, where people are adopting YouTube, using YouTube. Uh, in greater numbers, generally, mm. so you expect this number to be up. I don't want to downplay WWE's success. They're in 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 YouTube. They're a massive channel on YouTube. They're one of the most popular channels on YouTube globally. Um, and they've you know in in I'm looking we're looking at a chart here showing the number of YouTube views for each year. This is sourced from Social Blade. You can't even see this data on Social Blade anymore because I've been covering it going back to 2018. They don't, they'll only show you going back to like mid-2018 right now. But we know that in 20, in 2015, they had 4 billion views. Then the next year, in, in sixteen they had 6 billion views. In 2017, 6.6. 2018, 10 billion views. 2019, down to 9.2 billion views. I still don't have it straight what effect India or maybe some, some geo-blocking might be having on this. But in 2020, the year of the pandemic, 15 billion views. Up from 9.2 in the prior year, 10 billion the year before that, 15 billion in 2020, and now 12.2 billion. So that is still their second biggest year ever on YouTube. Uh, And and that's well up from 2019. But uh,
5: yes. Do you think the correlation of, you know, especially in 2020, the empty arena product not being something that you needed to watch? live like because it you know there it was a different it it came off differently than 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 an an event in front of live fans that people were just like oh i'll watch the highlights on youtube like was that probably and you're probably still seeing that in 2021 i brought that up before that
0: i think there is a WWE viewing base that's solely youtube (laughs) i'm sure sure to some extent um i don't know if you you look at the quarters here that we're looking at in this chart on youtube that that looks at the quarterly YouTube view performance what we see in the, in the non touring quarters is especially high. And, uh, and that's, that's the time with, with the Thunderdome and the PC, um, you know, and that's probably a time where people are working from home more. So I don't know if that's a factor who knows. Um, we are seeing, this is, this is a monthly breakdown here of, um, of just showing that, yeah, YouTube views have been down year over year, on a monthly basis since April 2021, so that's still in the Thunderdome era. Now remember, the Thunderdome era ended in mid early July, and it was down year over year before that. But it's been especially down since July, though. There, there's a pr- we have conditional formatting here, and you can see the the red differences get redder beginning in July. So there might be something to that that people were in a sense checking it out on delayed viewing on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then once crowds returned, maybe they started to check it out more so on traditional TV, whereas they hadn't before. That's a a plausible theory. Um, However, we have some news from the world of YouTube. It's not as if the world of YouTube is slowing down.
5: No, not at all. Essentially, from the Hollywood Reporter, uh, um, by Eric Alex Wepper. Now, uh, YouTube ad revenue tops 8.6 billion, beating Netflix in the quarter. YouTube topped Netflix in terms of quarterly revenue, with the Google-owned video platform delivering 8.6 billion in advertising ve- revenue in Q4. The company uh, s- said Tuesday for fiscal 2021, YouTube delivered 28.8 billion in advertising revenue in the same quarter a year earlier. YouTube delivered six. Nine billion in advertising revenue, underscoring the continued explosive growth of the platform. For comparison, Netflix delivered seven point seven billion revenue in Q four in twenty twenty one compared to six point six billion a year earlier.
0: So, what what was uh,
5: YouTube's Q four revenue? Uh, YouTube's Q four this year was eight point six
0: billion. Eight point six billion, to, yeah. Not all of that's ad revenue. Probably the overwhelming majority of it is. Um, did the, did, no, they do say that it, that is ad revenue, in fact. Delivering $8.6 yeah. billion dollars in advertising revenue compared to Netflix in the same quarter, same time period, I believe. I think I think their Q4 is, is calendar year for both of them, right? Um, I own both of these companies, by the way, Google and uh, Netflix, for full disclosure. $7.7 7 to $8.6 that's astonishing to me that sort of you, the, the average revenue, the average amount of money that you get per person or per viewer, I guess, in this case, is going to be way higher for Netflix, right? I guess the time spent, I know we had that gauge chart. I, I imagine the time spent for, for YouTube is a little bit higher than for Netflix. But the, the, the fact is that you know Netflix... What's 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 the rate on Netflix now? Twelve dollars a month or something like that? I know that's that's ninety
5: nine, I think, or yeah. maybe it's even gone up. Um, but they're all subscription based. Where YouTube is, is ads plus they have we we talked about it last week. There is some subscription tiers and whatnot, but mm-hmm. but and like if, if I think a, that might be the
0: difference. If you're a viewer in the U.S you're being monetized at a way higher rate than somebody in just about any, any other country. Uh, especially if you're, if you're watching from a country that doesn't have as, as strong an economy, um, the ad sales just aren't as strong and just aren't as lucrative as they are in the U S. So uh, yeah. So we, I, I mean, I can see that in, in our YouTube uh, analytics and that, you know, U S viewers um, are monetized at a higher rate, but subscriber revenue is, 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 in my view, like such a superior model to to what you're able to monetize through ads ads that, that the time being spent on, on the YouTube platform just must be huge. Um, so there's that. YouTube is still in great shape. And uh, I, I think what probably what's really changed YouTube, right, is it's sort of this this Facebook thing where you look at Facebook in its transition from desktop to mobile. And what I think we're seeing here is, is is a similar sort of I don't know, the way that people consume it has changed and, and has accelerated their their ability to to generate revenue in that, I I think up until the last couple of years, YouTube is I, w- I would be interested to know what their what their data is that probably the majority of their engagement up until fa- last couple of years I would bet is mostly desktop or mobile, and now I think a lot of people are watching YouTube through their television, yep. and that's the big difference. Uh,
5: I know every morning, Monday through Friday, I watch a YouTube show
0: on your television.
5: Yes, it's about 15 minutes long. It's called Good Mythical Morning with uh, with Rhett and Link. And actually, I saw a graph where they're worth 30 million dollars uh, with all the YouTube uh, revenue that that, that that they get. Um, but uh, yeah, I watch it every morning. It's habit of viewing for me. It's about 10 to 15 minutes, I think they're funny. They do a lot of cool, fun stuff on there when it comes to food or science experiments, stuff like that,
0: that's fun. Yeah, and it's that's probably a huge difference in time, right? Because you're much more likely, you're going to spend a, a lot more time playing something on your TV than you are playing yeah. something on your computer or on your, your phone or on your tablet. Um, so I'm sure that's accelerated their time tremendously. And, and YouTube just has this, you know, I mean you know Netflix is has made a tremendous pivot into making their own content, right And there's a lot of high quality content on there. YouTube just has this I, mean, I would be curious to just add up all the hours of content that they have It's, it's massive.
5: Something that YouTube has done recently is is they've seen the success of other platforms and they've integrated in theirs. I believe they've YouTube Reels, which is pretty much their version of TikTok, which if you notice with TikTok content, it just gets transferred over to YouTube and Instagram and even Facebook. It's the same stuff. But they've also they, they put a lot of free movies now that you could just watch on YouTube with ads. Like, you know, a little bit older movies, but probably the same stuff you would get on like 2B TV and stuff like that. Um, There was another I, there was another thing I was going to say. I can't remember. There was a they like I said, they took in success from other either streaming or social media platforms and they've integrated it into their own.
0: I mean, that, that that's something that gets talked a lot about about a lot in sort of wider media conversation. And Facebook is usually the biggest culprit there. They just acquired Instagram. And now it's Instagram has acquired you know copied a lot of the the products of Snapchat. and that's where stories comes from. Um but that's it's a very good point. That everyone's copying TikTok and uh mm-hmm. Usually, the the content that you see in the TikTok copycats have the TikTok logo in the corner. Same yeah. uh, But YouTube is doing Shorts, which is their version of of, of TikTok videos. And hey, yeah, look look, look, at look at what we're look we're doing right now. I, I think YouTube is copying Twitch. And we we hey, send us a super chat. Yes, that's a that's a Twitch product. Of I I, I don't know what it's called on Twitch because you don't spend much time there. But um,
5: that was, that was, yes. And they're pushing live streaming of, of video games. So that was, yes. That was the other thing I was thinking of. Absolutely. From this success from Twitch
0: yet. Yeah. So that's a quick rundown of the content. My, my, my favorite form of W content, in fact, WWE earnings calls. Um, but now that's the, that's the report that came out at four o'clock, four o'clock ish. I had to report at an AEW rating at the same time. Fairly disappointing AEW rating. Um, but then at 5 o'clock PM Eastern, Thursday, the real premium live event, the WWE Earnings Conference Call, featuring the real superstars of WWE, including new CFO Frank A. Riddick III, Chief Brand Officer Stephanie McMahon, new Senior Vice President of Investor Relations Seth Zaslow the real superstar of WWE, Nick Khan. And of course, Chairman and CEO, Vince McMahon. So uh, I did some uh, analysis of how much each executive talks over this conference call and over the prior five, but I really went all the way back to 2014, right? How far back did I go? Yeah, 2014. And uh, Nick Khan has been doing more of the talking than anybody else here. Uh, on, on every one of these calls since Nick, con- I think what we're looking at here on YouTube is a chart from October, 2020 and going forward. So that's the first Nick con conference call to the present. And he has done 27% or more, uh, of, of the, of the words uttered, according to the transcript, 27% or more are his words being uttered. Um, and, uh, Stephanie McMahon has been talking a little bit more than usual lately. Who's been talking less than usual? Vince McMahon, who only uttered 2% of the words that were said on this conference call in this call and the previous call. The one before that, he uttered 4% of the words. The one before that, he uttered 2% of the words. Um, not that unusual for, for Vince McMahon to not talk that much on these earnings calls. He did get really talkative in early 2020, and he, he spoke 36% of the words in April April 2020, the Q1 earnings call. He spoke 19% of the words in the February 2020, the Q4 call. Um, Well, that was because he fired the co-presidents who used to do the talking for him. Uh, There's one... Uh, the October, which is the Q3 call in 2019, he was in Saudi Arabia for that one. So that's why that one is down at a zero. But, you know, normally he's in the, the 10% range, sometimes as high as 18%, sometimes as low as 3%. But mostly he's he's at or around 10% and he's down to 2% lately. Um, so he's not talking that much. He's talking less than usual. Um, dude got very upset with me for sharing this information. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh i've hit a new new low i've hit rock bottom i'm terrible what can i say um if you could, so is this unusual uh aren't, i mean is it is it aren't there plenty of other companies where the c e o barely ever talks and by the way what what is what is vincent van's position here he's he's the chairman of the board of directors he's a, he's a chief financial i'm sorry he's the chief executive officer he is the head of creative he is the controlling shareholder, he holds preferred class shares that give him 10 times the voting power of everybody else that allows him to hold a minority of the shares while controlling the majority of the voting power. In, in, in essence, he owns the company. He owns, he's the majority owner of the company while not owning the majority of the shares, which is Mark Zuckerberg is the same thing, right? But anyway, um let's I I mean I didn't I didn't grab like every company in the SP 500 here or every company in the world, but I I grabbed some companies that I think of as peers in a number number of different ways uh for W. so i picked amc the theater company i picked sinclair broadcasting disney live nation that's a live live event business uh facebook slash meta and viacom cbs and i and i asked let's look at 2021 the entire year let's look at those four earnings calls that these executives did how much did the, the ceos talk in those in the entire year of conference calls and and Adam is it Adam Aaron? I'm sure there are some AMC enthusiasts who who, uh, who know this man well. The CEO of AMC, 73% of the words spoken on on AMC earnings calls are from the CEO. Chris Ripley, the Sinclair uh, CEO, 47%. Bob Chapik from Disney, 45%. Michael Rapino from Live Nation, 43%. Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook/Meta, 42%. Bob Backish from Viacom CBS, 40%. Again, WCEO, 3%. So, I mean, whatever. Uh, Do you want Vince McMahon talking more if you're, uh, if you, if you're looking after the interests of W? Maybe not. Uh, But I think it says something about how much he defers to, in the past, George Berrios, and now even more so Vince McMahon when it comes to strategy. Um, it's worth pointing out. Uh, Amazon has not had its CEO for looking for comparisons here. Amazon has not had a CEO who has spoken on an earnings call since April 20, 20, uh, 2019. <laughs> so Jeff Bezos is no longer the CEO. Uh, Andy Jassy is now. In, and Jeff Bezos stopped talking on earnings calls in April, 2009. Did I say 2019 before 2009? 2009. Yeah. I was just going to correct you, but then I mean, they, you read the line. So yeah, it, I, I do that a lot where I, leave out words or I say the wrong word that is in my brain. So please interrupt me when I do that. Um, April 2009 was the last time an Amazon CEO spoke on an earnings call more than 10 years ago. So they don't participate at all. Um, but uh, it makes me wonder if we have a a CEO emeritus here in charge of WB. Familiar with the term yeah. emeritus. Professor
5: well, emeritus. emeritus. Yeah, it is uh having retired but allowed to retain their title as an honorer uh emeritus professor of Microbi- microbiology uh is an example.
0: So, almost like a figurehead if you think about it. Yeah, and and look, and look I I tend to believe this legend around Vince that I believe it is still true today that this man works tirelessly, 24/7, barely sleeps, works a lot, is doing something a lot. I just can't imagine what it is. Um he apparently defers to Nikon on strategy a lot, which is fair enough. It's hard to, to imagine somebody who understands the business better, the media business better than Nikon. Uh, yes, you're going to add something. Yeah, so
5: this is a deeper topic for probably a different day. But w- the the narrative is, is Vince, creative is, is all Vince is at the end. It's what Vince wants, no matter how many people are on the creative writing team. If do you think a part of that now, especially lately, is because he knows a lot of that other business stuff is really pivoted towards Nikon and in some aspects, Stephanie, where he doesn't really have his hand probably in a lot of those pots when it comes to licensing deals and globalization and streaming and all that. So this is what he's got left and he's going to
0: hold on to it. Well, here's his the cold thing. hands. <laughs> here's the thing, though, like. How involved? I'm sure. I'm. I'm very confident that he's dictating creative. Creative is being. The vision is being dictated by him. The general direction. The major decisions. Probably the match results are being dictated by him. Yeah, he is the highest but, influence in that department. But that is by Barnum. Do we think he's involved in the in the day to day writing of the show? But when you hear reports that. Oh, the raw script was was torn up three hours before the sh- the show went to air. Is he tearing up a script that he was deeply involved in writing? I find that hard to believe. I don't. I don't
5: think it's like the nineties where he sits down with four people at his table in his you know in his house and everything. But I think that yes, these writers are writing this stuff, but then they bring it to him, and if he just doesn't like it, he tells them to change it. I mean, you know, I'm sure he also has participation in some of these business deals, and I'm sure the Saudi deal doesn't happen unless he goes over there and meets with the officials because i'm sure you know a man of power
0: meeting a man of power i'm sure they hit it off (laughs) you know uh i I don't know but bix bix found some some records showing how showing record of some sort of contact between berrios and somebody from the saudi government i think i'm sure if if bix is listening he can point it out uh point out to to us what what i'm what i'm thinking of um who knows but uh now, we're going to go through some audio clips from, from the, the earnings call, and uh, here is the entirety of Vince McMahon's comments from Thursday.
2: Welcome, everyone. As you know, we've generated a considerable increase in profit and revenue, uh, with revenue uh, over $1 billion, which is somewhat of a mark for us during the course of the year. We reimagined our, our business and reimagining our business is something, by the way, we do just about every month. Um, if not every week around here, we're very, very flexible. Nick and staff are going to be talking about many of the uh, key achievements that we've uh, made and that we obviously remain focused on on our upcoming year of 2022 as well as years to come with uh, working toward record revenue again, uh, as well as adjusted and what have you. So our uh, performance, we think, uh, pretty much speaks for itself and speaks for the longevity we've had for so many years and the opportunities that are there for us you know, to grow uh, exponentially. So, Nick, take her away. So, Nick, take her away. Uh, Adjust we've and what have
0: you. Um, it's, it's about as surface level as it gets. It speaks for itself. Nick and Steph are going to talk about this stuff. So um, probably the most newsworthy exchange here there's, there's some other stuff that I think is really interesting that we're going to dig into, but probably the most newsworthy hint that was dropped here is this exchange between Nikon and the Wells Fargo analyst Stephen Cahal, uh, where St- Stephen Cahal was, was basically asking about, now, we don't say the words Saudi Arabia on these calls, no, no. We say large scale international event for some reason. I don't know why why one would not want to say Saudi Arabia. Can you can you think of any reasons why why don't they say Saudi Arabia here?
5: Because it's not a very uh politically correct
0: nation. <laughs> what do you mean? There's they, some controversial I, things. But I, when I watched it comes Crown Women's Rights and I watched Crown Freedom Jewel of Journalism and, and Super Showdown. And and it looks like a pretty low-key country to me. Things seem pretty relaxed there when I watch. This, the Saudi events on the W network. Yeah, In he fact, would also be. Hey, no, wait, 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 call. Don't you remember the, the first event they did there, the British Royal Rumble, where they aired that video about how progressive Mohammed bin Salman is and how he's changing the laws and women can drive now? Remember that?
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah, progressive. Like the, the <laughs> yeah, no, they're still, un- unfortunately, with Saudi Arabia. Um, There's still a lot of rights that, you know, when it comes to freedom of speech and women that they do not have, that they should have, there should be equal rights for everybody. And, but they know this when they're talking to investors and yes, the investors know that the shows are in Saudi Arabia, but it sounds better to say large scale international events. It's very, you know, buzzwords and, you know, safe for WWE
0: executives to do this. Now, wouldn't it be great if you could, while using that euphemism, large-scale international event, which is a euphemism for Saudi Arabia events. By the way, we should always remind people these are not just events that are happening in Saudi Arabia for the for the fans there. These are events that are bought by the government. Um, fifty million dollars a year, or 15, I'm sorry, fifty million dollars per event, one hundred million dollars a year. Um, that is what you call a controversy fee. That, that, that is that is my my word for it. Um. Wouldn't it be nice though if you've, you've invested in this euphemism, large scale international event? If you could have other large scale international events that were not in Saudi Arabia to say, "Look, no, these could refer to anything." wouldn't that we and we've, we've, we've filibustered long enough here. Let's uh, let's let's go to this exchange uh, between Stephen. Call he's trying to understand whether or not there's going to be two Saudi events, and that's just being clarified for him. You know, so here, here's the clip.
4: Thanks. Um, Maybe just first, a couple of questions on the 2022 guidance. Um, I'm wondering what type of media OPEX growth is implied in there? That's always a tough one to model, so any commentary on that? Second, sorry if I missed this, should we assume two large-scale international events?
0: And then uh, Frank Britta gives him an answer, and then Nick Khan at the end. Great, thank you. Stephen,
1: Steven, just just quickly on the uh, international large-scale events, why just limit it to two? Let's see how it looks in the next uh, couple of months. So, is there going to be a third Saudi event
0: per year? What's he talking about here?
5: I mean, that would be my guess. Now, this large-scale, what I was going to bring up before you play the clip, this large-scale international event term, that's fairly new, right? Probably this year, I would say.
0: I want to say I first started hearing it from Christina Salen, so it's it's at least that maybe. New. Because they did do super
5: showdown in Australia a couple years ago. That was a bigger event, but I, I think this is before this was about. So that was,
0: that was in the same quarter as the first Saudi event in 2018. Um, Yeah. I think, yeah, somebody suggested to me, well, maybe they're going to go back to Saudi uh, to Australia. Um, I think though, I think what's happening here. And somebody did hint to me that this does not, who, who would know something about this, hinted to me that this is not going to be a Saudi, a third Saudi event. So let's, Let's calm that down f- first. Uh, this is not going to be another fifty million dollars. It's not going to be a, a hundred and fifty million dollars per year from the Saudi government that they're going to be collecting. I don't. I don't believe so. Um, let's take a look at the October press release that they put out about their that they've that used to say pay per view schedule has been changed to say premium live event schedule. And where are the gaps on this schedule? This is this is the twenty twenty two schedule. And we have a gap in February, which is where elimination chamber is going to happen in in Jetta uh, this month. Then there's there's no event in, in March, but I think there's just going to be no PLE in March. Then we got April with WrestleMania, we got May with uh, something in in Rhode Island, we got June with something in Chicago. We got July with Money in the Bank in Las Vegas at the stadium. We got SummerSlam in July, late July, at, in Nashville in the stadium. Uh, there, there's nothing in August, but there's two in July, so so I think July is going to have no ple in it. Um, let's let's come back to the September in a second. October is, has nothing listed here. That's probably going to be another Saudi event, and then November is going to have Survivor Series in Boston. Maybe there'll be nothing in, in December again. But they list here Saturday. Remember this? I'm sure we talked about this at the time. Saturday, September 3rd or Sunday, September 4th, premium live event at a TBD location. Any guesses?
5: Uh, well, so, I mean, Saudi Arabia could be a guess. Or England, wasn't England thrown out there, too, The U- or at least the UK as a whole?
0: Purely speculation on my part. I think this is a UK show, perhaps a UK stadium show. By the way, we talked about it possibly running the same weekend as as exactly, all out. Exactly. This is this is labor. I'm going to check the calendar real quick. I, I'm pretty sure it is Labor Day weekend, which is when all all out has been for a number of years in a row. So I think that I, that would be my expectation. And Nick Con's hint makes it sound like there's going to be an announcement fairly soon. um One would think so if you're going to announce a, a big show. Uh, that's going to happen in September, so I uh, look for that email alert coming soon. Um, so I think that's, I think it's going to be a big UK show, perhaps a stadium show. Uh, that is going to be a pay per view and first one, it would be the first one since SummerSlam 1992.
5: I have an idea for a large scale international event. I'm not Do sure. You? What about North what Korea? India? What about India? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, just just because it is a market that they have been heavily invested in, being more you know huge over there, how, and, you know you have,
0: how has how how have live events in the past performed in India? I I don't know that. I mean,
5: I'm sure there is something in our you know data there on the Patreon, but uh, I there's, I'm there's not sure.
0: there's there's not <laughs> before people go go look. Um. Uh. So when Jinder Mahal was. WWE Champion in, t- in 2017, they aligned that with a tour, an international tour where they did a couple, they scheduled a couple of dates in India. They had to cancel one of them because apparently ticket sales were not strong enough. Um, UK has proved to be a pretty strong live event market. Um, I mean, the median income in, in India is way lower. So there's a lot less money to extract there from, from a ticket, ticket standpoint. Um, but in the UK, if they did a stadium show, Lord knows it would be a hot ticket and they would generate a ton of revenue from selling tickets there. Um, but in India, I think they would book a stadium and they would have a tough time selling tickets and, and the tickets that they did sell would have to be at a pretty low price uh, until the Indian economy grows or, and I mean, clearly they have a strong fan base there and that is their number two yeah. market. I mean, it's a massive population. There's a number of very large cities there. Uh, but yeah, um, it, 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 I, I think people are not so much willing to go see it live yet for whatever reason. Uh, but may, maybe that'll change in the future, but not anytime soon. Um, so let's go. So that, that was jumping ahead into Q and a Q and a happens later, of course, but we had a, uh, wow, we're, we're hour 20 minutes into this thing. What we, what we had though, which we have had for a while is, is this, the seminar from Nikon where he educates us about media and one of his topics that, that he taught us about this time was about the state of mergers and acquisitions across the media space and beyond. So here's Nick Khan's uh, lesson on that topic.
1: Stephanie McMahon will further discuss gaming in a moment. Before that, we wanted to share our point of view on further consolidation in the gaming sector. First, like many of you, we are not surprised by this continued consolidation. Microsoft is making its biggest acquisition in its 46-year history with its purchase of Activision Blizzard. Take-Two, one of our gaming partners, made its biggest acquisition in its 28-year history with its purchase of Zynga. Sony made moves to bolster its gaming division with its acquisition of Bungie. As Sony made it clear on their earnings call yesterday, we expect these companies to monetize the value of their newly acquired titles via scripted and unscripted content. The sector should end up with four, maybe five players emerging, and the winners will largely be dependent on their IP. As we've seen from Warner Discovery, Amazon MGM, and Univision Televisa, all of these are driven by content and distribution. This isn't just the major conglomerates. Penguin Random House and The New York Times have both made moves in recent months to scale their businesses through strategic acquisitions we are even seeing theme park consolidation with the SeaWorld play on Cedar Fair. All said, we believe this consolidation trend will continue in 2022. We're all keeping our eyes on DISH and DirecTV, Nextstar, EA, and Lionsgate as they look to possibly enter into meaningful M&A conversations. Again, all content or platform plays.
0: So there's Nikon giving us a lesson, but it all points to... Look at how important content is. Look how important intellectual property is, and what does w e have it's intellectual property i p and this is how badly companies need it that they need to consolidate they need to merge together and put their i p together so that they can you know get the content that they need to do the business that they need to do um and look at look at us. we've got lots of i p so that makes us even more attractive. However, is he speaking in code here? Is he is he saying what what I think he might be saying? Chris Golo, you're a proponent of this idea. Is W V for sale?
5: I and as we've seen in his previous comments, I think that a sale. I think a sale will eventually happen and it could happen during its lifetime. And I know that you are 100 percent. No, not for the God no. damn it. No, what <laughs> give me it. it's mine. But, but uh and as Nick Khan has said before, I don't think he's actively looking for, but I'm sure phone calls are coming in. And, but also what I see with this mergers and acquisitions, we see companies buying uh, companies that make products similar to, to what they're like, you know, you see video, you know, Microsoft, you know, acquiring companies that make video games that they put on their platforms to kind of, for lack of better words, cannibalize the market. Now PlayStation can't have games under, you know, Activision or whatever it might be. Um, WB, I guess, could do that, but w- how would they do that? Like, you know, what stuff could they purchase a way that AEW would even have a shot at having,
0: you know? Well, I think the idea is that somebody who needs their IP, somebody who probably owns a media platform or has, a, I don't know, I, I, I always look at Endeavor. I, I wanted to wait to get to this, but like look, look at Endeavor-acquired UFC. Um, there's a lot of ways that that works out for Endeavor, probably, that I don't deeply understand. Um, could Khan sell WWE to CAA? I was looking into wh- how big is CAA. Uh, cursory Google search tells me that CAA makes about $500 million a year. So that's like half of what WWE does. Um, Generates, so I don't know if CA is big enough. CA makes CAA is not a publicly traded company, so there's a limited limited amount of information. CA is Nikon's former employer. Um, it is a talent agency, but it makes about a half a billion dollars a year. W makes a billion dollars a year, so I don't know. Maybe they merge. Is probably not going to happen, but may, but maybe that's a possibility. Uh, anyway, Brandon Ross of Lightshed, in the Q and A, he 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 pressed. Nikon. He wants to know, are you saying what I think you're saying?
4: Great. And then, Nick, in your introductory remarks, you opined on consolidation across TMT. Um, I, I know that you're strategic when you write these scripts. So I was wondering if you were trying to message something there, or really, how, how do you see WWE as a possible strategic piece in this uh, MA wave we're in? And
1: I have one more. Sure. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, I don't know how strategic uh, it is, (laughs) just how how organic it is. What, What the message we're trying to convey subtly or overtly is it appears to us that every platform, every business wants to be in business in a material way with people who can create content, which we've been doing here, as you know, for 35 years plus. So we think, you know, there's even more buyers now, as we all know, than there were three years ago. We think in two years from now, there's going to be even more buyers than there are now. So that was uh, that was what was reflected in those comments.
0: Yeah, that's all he was saying. I think I think Brandon Ross thinks that they want to sell. That Nick wants to sell. My my prevailing. Belief though is that Vince McMahon will never let go of this company as long as he's alive and well, his health is good. Um, if, if there's a problem with his health, maybe. Uh if if there's a day where Vince McMahon is no longer alive and somebody else is is running this company, maybe they sell it. Um but I don't think that's gonna happen. Maybe they can convince Vince that they can give him some sort of Dana White deal where you're Dana White's still in, in independent control of USC somehow. I don't know. But I don't I I think in other people who I've talked to who I think know what they're talking about, think that, too. Um,
5: just for the chat, MJ, I do see your super chat. I am. We're going to bring it up towards the end, along with Tim's Tim B's as well. They're kind of a little bit just a little bit steered away from the topic. So, OK.
0: And then the next chapter of the Vince of the Vincing Man. Of, of Nick Khan's seminar is he's talking about the value of live sports streaming, which I think is a really important topic for us to consider here when we're trying to, get to understand what's the value of WWE's media rights and how and to what extent do streaming platforms play into this? It's obviously in WWE's interest for everybody to believe that that live that live sports going to be bought by streaming properties, but but here's Nick Khan saying, "Look, it's a big deal right now."
1: Finally. We want to touch on the latest movement in the sports rights space. We've discussed in the past how one of the biggest acquisition drivers for streamers is live rights. It's why Amazon, Peacock, Paramount Plus, and ESPN Plus and Hulu have spent billions over the past year to bring top-tier rights to their services. ESPN alone closed seven major deals over the course of 10 months. Amazon, as we all know, recently spent over $10 billion to be in business with the NFL and that deal is starting a season early. NBCU's $2.7 billion extension of the EPL was largely a peacock play, with most of the inventory slotted for the streamer. ViacomCBS in its first year has recognized the value of live rights, shifting its UEFA Champions League programming to Paramount Plus on a near-exclusive basis, and picking up rights for Serie A and the Europa League. We discussed Apple three quarters ago, it's just a matter of time for Apple. We all saw Netflix's Tricky Friday a few weeks ago. It's just a matter of time for Netflix. All of these aforementioned companies are more incentivized now to license content at increased prices from content originators. So there's Nikon
0: saying, you know, we know the NFL is mostly on linear TV. It's on NBC. It's on ESPN. It's on CBS. It's on Fox. It's on I think I named my ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, uh, ESPN. Uh, but Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video is going to have the NFL starting next season, Thursday. It's going to be exclusive. Is that right? You probably know this better than I do. The Thursday Night Football? Yeah. Exclusively. I believe so, yeah. So it's been, Thursday Night Football has been on Fox and on the NFL Network up to this point.
5: Is that correct? CBS had it for a little bit, too. I believe if I remember correctly.
0: But I be- believe the, the new deal is Fox is letting go of that. They're just going to do their their Sunday football and whatever playoff rights they get, and you're going to have to have Amazon Prime to watch Thursday night football in the U.S., which most people do have access to it at least. Whether or not they're using it is another thing, because it's you know you're you're getting discounts on shipping because you have Amazon Prime. More people have Amazon Prime in this country than have a pet. Anyway, uh, and we know the NBA is on ESPN and Turner uh mlb is on turner and espn and fox sports uh i'm going over the major sports leagues in my head nhl is uh he didn't mention this actually he he could have uh nhl is on turner now and on espn but mostly on espn plus yes so there you go it's on streaming uh and hey hey look you know the the Prime Video with Thursday Night Football. Peacock just renewed the Premier League, but he said oh, the biggest piece of the of the Premier League deal is for them to put Premier League games on Peacock, which is news to me. P- Paramount Plus, the, the Viacom CBS property, has these. Uh, are you familiar with any of these these soccer leagues? UEFA, Serie yes, um, A, Europa League.
5: I'm familiar with Serie A. Uh, um, AC Milan fan myself, uh, so um, I'm I'm. Familiar with uh, Syrah. uh UEFA and Europa kind of, but like, and I know, like, what was it? The uh, La Liga just had a huge media rights oh, deal, which too. Yeah. he brought up in the quarter uh, three earnings call. Mm-hmm. Uh So, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's especially with the, the increased popularity of uh soccer in America, you know, we're seeing these rights get bigger and bigger as, as the acquisitions
0: go. And especially it's just a matter of time for Apple. There's reports that Apple's interested in Sunday ticket and in some sort of live Major League Baseball rights. It's just a matter of time for, for Netflix. I, I wanted to, to point out is are you familiar with with Netflix's Freaky Friday? Have you have you watched Freaky Friday on Netflix? I, I have. I have not. <laughs> what is he talking about here?
4: Let's
5: see. It took, it took
0: me a while to figure out. I was Googling like Netflix Freaky Friday and I'm getting like the um the Lindsay Lohan movie and stuff like that. Did- uh, well, yeah, that's what I, that's what I'm thinking. What he's What he's talking about, and I should I I, I have Netflix stock, by the way. I should know this. Uh, Netflix lost a lot of value on Friday, January 21st, after it's probably it's Thursday earnings call the day before. Uh, it went from over five hundred dollars a share down to just under four hundred dollars a share. Uh, so lost a lot of value. I became much poorer that day um, because. You know, I should know this better, but Netflix, its growth is in question. I think they do give pro- projections or estimates on what they think the the subscriber count is going to be for the following quarter. And I, they might have missed on that, or at least there's questions around their growth. Um, but U- U.S.-Canada subs were up 2% sequentially in that quarter, Q4, Q4. Um, maybe there's q1 that i missing. i don't think so but anyway um there's there's questions around the growth um for for net netflix subscribers i i threw this uh chart together still a lot of growth in the asia pacific region some growth still happening in latin america some growth still happening in europe where where the uh europe middle east africa region is basically equal to the us canada region in terms of subs um but anyway, they're, they're having challenges with their business and some value that was baked into their business. Investors and analysts now think, oh, we, we, we're overestimating that and, and downgraded it. And now Netflix is down to $400 a share when it used to be at $500 a share. So what is Netflix going to have to do? If they want to maintain subscribers and, and drive some more growth in their subscribers, what are they going to have to do? Maybe they're going to have to play in sports. So that's what Nikon is saying there. Uh, this is a conversation an exchange between Nikon and Brandon Ross talking about, uh, you know, sort of the prospects for Ron Smackdown rights on streaming platforms.
4: Gotcha. And then finally, um, in your introductory remarks, you also talked about the importance of the extra engagement that you've been able to build through Peacock um, versus um, when you own the WWE Network. And your last Ron Smackdown deal you did with Fox, and one of the reasons was because it, it, was, it provided you with the widest uh, possible distribution. And as you look towards your renewals for Ron Smackdown coming up in a couple of years, do you think that broadcast is still going to be the right avenue to pursue? Or with all of um, the eyeballs that are shifting to streaming, do you think that a streamer might be the way to go?
1: Couple things, you know. Number one, we're we're extremely pleased with our partnership with Fox, and obviously, we believe in what they're doing. Um, If just off the top of our head, if you look at where the playoffs and finals of these sports live, and keep in mind, our playoffs and finals, our premium live events are living on Peacock. Our regular season, if you will, on Fox and USA. Uh, Super Bowl upcoming in a week and change. NBC NBA Finals in uh, June, ABC, uh, the Final Four matchup, a combination of Turner and CBS. So we still still think that you're seeing you know big event programming there. We won't dismiss or discount those buyers as to where the future's going. We think they're real. We also realize the world that we're all living in where premium dollars are being paid for premium content Certainly, not only on Peacock, but on all of the other streamers, as we know. When Vince, Steph and Company launched WWE Network in 2014, they really just had to be the second best after Netflix to be the second best in the world. And if you want to slide Hulu in there, then third best in the world. Now, as you know, it's a cluttered marketplace. So it made all the sense in the world to partner up with Peacock on that one. And we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see where we are uh, come the next rights deal. So I'm
0: a little bit confounded by the, by Brandon Ross's premises here. So I guess what he's saying, which, which but no, this part makes sense. You know, I can make sense of this, that it's sort of around the question of how important is reach. And one of the reasons why going to Fox is a good idea is because Fox is in, I don't know, over a hundred million homes. You don't have to have a cable subscription to have Fox. If you have a cable subscription, you definitely got Fox. Um, so that makes SmackDown really widely available. It's important that a lot of people have access to our content because that benefits all of our downstream businesses, whether that's getting people to watch the premium live events, whether that's getting people to go to events, whether that's getting people to buy our consumer products, our merchandise and our games and things like that. Um, And I think what Bran Ross is saying here is that do, I guess, how important is that reach when... Look, people are watching linear TV less and are, are engaging in streaming more. Um, I think that's a bit ahead of the curve. I think that's a lot ahead of the curve. And if we think about, we, we know from that baloney report, that, um, or not even from the baloney report, from, from Comcast's latest report that Peacock has 9 million paid subscribers. They have an additional 7 million highly engaged subscribers who have access to Peacock for free because they are Comcast, Xfinity, or Cox communication subscribers. So they have, six, let's say, 16 million paid paying subscribers. By the way, you have to be a paying subscriber to watch the premium live events for WWE. You get very limited access to content otherwise. Um, so that's 16 million households we could say that Peacock is being used in now, there's more that aren't highly engaged. I guess it's a question of how many, how many homes is, is, is Cox and Comcast in? And uh, I, I know where I could look that up, but it's not as, me- not as many households as have access to Fox and are going to have access to Fox for a long time to come. Um, so I think we could pose this question, too, is that what do you think has higher, higher viewership? The premium live events right now? Or SmackDown, or Raw for that matter. You know, we know Raw, just to, to, to establish what the viewership is, Raw did something like 1.7 million viewers uh, on on Monday. SmackDown against the Olympics on Friday looks to have done about 2.1 million viewers. Do we think the PLEs are doing that many viewers? I
5: I mean, I don't think so. I don't but think so. We don't, we don't have hard numbers. Um, I have one I have one more question. Then we have an intro, a fun super chat from MJ on But the question I have on this is we're talking a lot about next day, next day air rights from this narrative. And I get that. But when we were just talking about sports TV deals, I was kind of looking up and the next major deal to expire. That's non WWE looks to be the NBA, which is 2025. So in reality, after, TV deal after
0: WWE after,
5: yeah. So in reality, WWE's TV rights deal would be the next big U.S. sport entertainment. And I think the bigger picture here is is that when Nick Khan brings up something like Apple TV and stuff like that, that that could be the avenue that they're going that we could possibly see Raw or SmackDown on a streaming service at the next TV rights deal.
0: Maybe partly. I don't I don't think completely. I mean, I, I could see some, you know, hybrid or gradual distribution there where I could see where some episodes of raw are on peacock and the USA network um I, I think it's too early to put raw and Smackdown on exclusively on a streaming platform. I think that would not be enough reach to help their other businesses um, I think premium live events are behind a paywall on peacock because those were the events that traditionally the more hardcore fan wanted and was willing to pay a lot of money for, um, so they so it makes sense that you would put it behind a paywall, um, and it makes sense that you're getting a lot more money per event for them from NBC Universal than you are per event for Raw SmackDown. It's um, depending on how you do the math, but yeah, it uh, this this is a little bit early, which you know the Lightshed guys do, do seem to be especially futuristic. With, with some of their uh, assessments of media.
5: Speaking of uh, Brandon Ross, MJ had a, a fun super chat. Uh, will Brandon Ross and VKM be on night one or night two of WrestleMania? And who goes overweight, he said, and then we ever see a price target on a pole match?
0: Yes, yeah, so this is a perfect segue for what what happened at the end of the, this exchange between Brandon Ross and Nikon.
1: And your Super Bowl is on Peacock, right? Yes, sir. So, WrestleMania are you coming this yeah. year. Or are you not attending?
4: I um, I hope to be there. I hope to be there. Well, Thank you. We have a special
1: pile driver ready for you from the other day.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I bet you do. do yeah, I'll stay from then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So there you go. Um, yeah, and, and interesting. He 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 thinks that uh, Nick wants to sell. Um, I don't know I you know he's friend of the show uh, and, I, and I listen to the the lightshed podcast and it's always really informative um I'm not sure I understand the media business in the same way um, but maybe he, he understands it better now I think you have a question for me Chris call uh,
5: <laughs> so the question I have for you is did WB release all these wrestlers just so they could reach a billion dollars
0: that's what it was all about right um Vince and Nick, they sat in their room together, and they were like, "I want to make a million billion dollars." Nick, how can I do it? And Nick was like, "Well, let's just, let's just fire people." And he was like, "Yes, that's it. Perfect. That's 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 essentially what happened, right?" No, I I think, and in the narrative
5: I know that we um when you're putting out your preview uh, for this Q4 and year end uh, a lot of the narrative on the internet was, well, yeah, of course they reached a billion dollars. They released all these people. Of course, that's why they did it. You know, Oh, hit budget or, you know, and, you know, and listen, like a lot of the releases we talked about it, like it, you know, sad to see all those jobs lost, but I think earning a billion dollars profit it it was part of the pie, but not the larger
0: picture. And I, I realize I've skipped a slide here. We'll go back to it in a moment. Um, yes, that's <laughs> why I wasn't ready for win yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, how much money did did W make in revenue? Can you read this number for me, Chris? Let's let's examine this notion about whether uh, how how much all the releases, which there were something like eighty of them, how many of how much those releases in twenty twenty one played into W's financial achievements, targets, whatever. People want this notion that and and it's and look, there were 60 employees in, in one period during the spring who were fired for downsizing because they saw an opportunity to cut costs. They're a private company, fair enough. Uh they they probably had severance payments on that too. But anyway, then that's about profitability. That's not about revenue. Anyway, um, but those are, you know, the employee head count was way down, right? But nobody knows any of those faces no no wrestling fans know those faces. They know these seventy nine eighty faces who are released, and that has to and the wrestlers i I hear are believing this narrative too that it's all part of this uh you know plan that they had because they wanted to to you know hit certain financial targets probably or because they're they're getting ready to to sell the company they're getting ready to sell the company so that all of these things that happen to my friends or to these wrestlers who I like has some grander meaning. And I think that is wrestler and wrestling fan fiction to apply greater meaning to this thing that is upsetting that people are losing their jobs. It's just a matter of a realignment in their talent vision, which we're about to talk about to give Vince talent. That's not necessarily better, but talent that Vince is more likely to get behind. Um, so let's let, let's jump to another exchange from the Q and A that is between J.P. Morgan analyst David Karnofsky and uh, responses from Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan here.
4: All uh, right, thanks for taking the question. I just one for Nick or Stephanie. You know, can you discuss in more detail the next in line program? Just interested to know how this is, you know, kind of different or improved relative to the way you traditionally recruited talent, you know, from some of the regional or smaller promotions.
3: Uh, absolutely, David, um, this is Steph again and, and thank you for the question. It It is uh, absolutely an evolution of our process, you know, the NIL program I think offers, op- offers WWE more opportunity than any other brands who are partnering with these collegiate athletes because it is such a recruiting tool. Um, you have, you know, elite level college athletes with big brands and personalities that you know, otherwise wouldn't necessarily have a path forward. Think about how many people actually make it into the NFL or how many people actually make it into the NBA, et cetera. It's a very, very small pool and you're left with some incredibly talented athletes who really have no options to move forward with their athletic careers, save for WWE. The NIL program now offers that pathway. We have a recruiting website tied to the NIL program, and not only the athletes that we have under contract, but now all of the athletes who follow those athletes are going to be coming into the pipeline, and we have been seeing uh, a number of of college athletes signing up on our tryout uh, site. I
1: would also add into that, David, just off the top of our heads. E, University of Iowa, Roman Reigns, Georgia Tech, Dwayne Johnson, University of Miami, Goldberg, University of Georgia. It's those folks just one step away from making it to the NFL, who are amazing athletes, big personalities, that we think can cross over. So why not get involved in their lives at an early stage? It made all the sense in the world to us. So...
0: Yeah, I, I think part of this is giving Vince talent that he's more likely to be interested in using. <laughs> um, but what, what do you what do you think of this nil program? Is this a good idea? Is this really, independently I, of, of Vince's preferences, a good idea?
5: I mean, and, and, you know, my personal creative opinion, I, I I think you get talent from all avenues. If you're going to solely base on this, yeah, sure, you're going to end up with Roman Reigns and, 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 you know, and Goldbergs and stuff like that. But he also didn't list all the people that were college athletes and never worked out, all those people they brought into OVW and FCW and NXT over the years that were straight from college sports. Um, I think you need a good mix of base. I mean, I get where they're doing on this, you know, and it's, they're almost beating – they're trying to beat other avenues to get athletes. Like, for example, somebody – let's just bring up Gable Stevenson. Definitely a guy that probably could have made a career out of the UFC, right? Probably.
0: If he was interested, yeah, for sure. Yeah, if he was interested, amazing,
5: yeah. Um, And I think he mentioned that they were interested in him. Uh, but WWE beat him to the punch. So, I mean, I could see for them, they're probably seeing this as they can beat other competitors who would want these college athletes to the punch.
0: Yeah. I, I guess the, the critique that makes sense here is, is about kind of what you were touching on is the hit rate The um, hit rate with people who don't have prior wrestling experience, may be lower than it is for people who do have wrestling experience that that's not to dismiss that you will get some people like Nick Khan mentioned Roman Reigns, Biggie Goldberg. Um, who am I leaving out the rock? The rock, of course. Um, but you, Will miss a lot of people. Now they're not going to completely stop using independent wrestlers. Apparently, they still they still have done a tryout. They did one tryout since uh, introducing the, the NIL program. But if you're going to recruit those people less, um, you're missing a lot of talent that could be hits for you, who would have a higher hit rate probably. But on the other hand, so this is where this this starts to depart from reality or depart from what I think is good talent assessment, uh, is that yeah, Vince is just not going to use people like that. He's not going to use Adam Cole, Kyle O'Reilly, Johnny Gargano to their potential. Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, he's not using them. They're not, he's not using Roman Reigns to his, hasn't used Roman Reigns to his potential. He's becoming a pretty effective star right now. But look at those five years where, Anyway, <laughs> not using uh, right. Baron Corbin to his potential, I would argue. Anyway, that's what's happening there. So that's that's what they're doing. They're serving the master. Uh, so let's talk about a couple analyses from stock analysts, which came out uh, from J.P. Morgan, from David Kronoski, who we just heard in the Q&A.
5: Yep. So this is the investment thesis uh, from Kronosky. Uh Following agreements to license the WWE Network to Peacock and NXT to USA, WB's domestic distribution is largely set for the next several years. Further increases to 2022-2023. OEBIT estimates are unlikely in the near term given a lack of visibility into the investment spend or potential deals to license to the WB network abroad. At the same time, continuing mixed ratings, performance, and competition from AEW may weigh in on the
0: multiple. Yes. So what I wanted to focus on here is – continued mixed ratings performance and competition from AEW may weigh on the multiple, the multiple that he's talking about there. And this is from Morgan Stanley, not from JP Morgan. Um, but the multiple is what is used to, de- to determine what the stock price should be. Basically they're, they're taking the forward looking four quarters of EBITDA, not to be confused with OBITDA and, which is was similar. So this is another profit metric that's that's similar. They're taking the for, the forward looking four quarters of EBITDA and multiplying that by some multiple and then from that we get their market capital. And from their market capital we can divide that by outstanding shares and get the stock price. Long story short. Uh, Morgan Stanley points out that here's some other peers of W Warner M- Music Group, Live Nation, endeavor the parent of ufc and uh, liberty media which is the formula uh, formula one company they all are valued at far higher multiples of their forward-looking EBITDA than wb is by more than double in some cases i mean the the next nearest uh low multiple to wb here is is about 20x in the form of endeavor and he uh Ben Swinburne's got this listed as uh, 9.6x for WE. But anyway, this is all boring math. Nobody's going to understand what I'm talking about. But let's, let's get, in, get into um, where did I have? Yeah. So let, let's look at what I think the, the EBITDA is. So t- let's, let's try to get to where we, where, here's where our goal is here. Let's try to get to what should W stock price be. Right now, W stock price as the close of the market is almost $52. $51.71. As you mentioned, Chris Gull, the market capital. The value of all of the W shares, all added up at $51.72, are valued at $3 billion, $3.92 billion, almost $4 billion. So if we if we do this formula where we take the forward-looking EBITDA and let's let's try to figure out what their stock price would be. Now, according to the scientists here at WrestleMics headquarters, who have been more accurate than the analysts last three quarters. We think that the forward-looking EBITDA for WB is three hundred and thirty-one million dollars. Now, if we we add Morgan Stanley's listed multiple of nine point six, we get three point one eight billion dollars. So that that's that doesn't sound right. So I don't I don't know if if that's old or where he's getting that from, but what we need the multiple that we need to get to the current value is eleven point eight. So if we multiply three thirty one times eleven point eight then we do get something that is very close to W's market cap. Now, if we take the next nearest multiple that Morgan Stanley has listed there, which is for Endeavor, which is at a 9 point, was it 19.9X? Let's make sure that's right. 19.9X. The others are even higher. Live Nation is at 24.7X. Warner Music Group is at 20X of their forward-looking EBITDA. So anyway, let's, let's go with the lowest one that we've got here besides WE. Let's go with 20X, which is what Endeavor's multiple is. And let's multiply Forward looking EBITDA of 331 million dollars times 20. And that gives us a market cap of 6.62 billion dollars. 6.62 billion dollars. Um and now if if we let's let's put this six six two six point six two billion 6.62 billion dollars let's divide that by there's roughly 9 you know, 76 million uh, basic shares that would give us a stock price of eighty-seven dollars. But why is the multiple low? Because of according to J.P. Morgan, a different analyst uh, from David Karnowski from J.P. Morgan, uh, it's affected maybe by other factors, but affected by you know, their questionable ratings performance. SmackDown's been doing okay lately, in my assessment, but Raw has had its challenges. But we're going to see what Raw is going to do now without the football competition, but and competition from AEW. Uh, so is 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 AEW, at least in, in in the in the assessment of this analyst, competition from AEW is dragging down W's multiple. Uh, one reason why W might be taking competition from AEW seriously. I don't know if if, if that information goes so far and, and reaches Vince McMahon. Uh, but but that's a reality. I think you know the stock price would be higher. If not for AEW, because at least one analyst would would put that multiple up a bit higher and that would raise his stock price target a bit.
5: And I think AEW becomes true competition. You know, I mentioned earlier about the TV rights deal. I think AEW is the same year as SmackDown's, right? Expiring, I believe. Sorry, say that again. Uh, AEW's TV right deal for at least Dynamite is expiring the same year as SmackDown's.
0: Raw and SmackDown expire at the same time, September 2024. Uh, okay. Dot, dot AEW's TV deal for both Dynamite and Rampage will expire, if WarnerMedia picks up the one-year option, will expire December 2024. So one quarter okay. later.
5: You know, th- well, th- that'll be very interesting how similar those deals are, if, you as know, we talked about in the past. But yeah, yeah. Um, I know you're about to queue in here uh, um, for Morgan Stanley. This has been Swinburne uh, with respects to W's upcoming domestic rights renewal, where we currently expect a 1.5 times AAV increase. We see a wide range of outcomes, both in rights fee increase as well as future distribution partners with more streaming players, potentially bidding on these rights, which we've seen from Nick Khan uh, kind of alluding to that in the last couple of learning call.
0: Yeah. So if we assume, uh, so what they're basically what what Morgan Stanley with Ben Swinburne is saying here is we're baking into our estimate a in, in the in the New Deal term, which would begin October 2024, we're assuming that they can get a 1.5 x increase. The previous, the current deals were the, are the result of a 3.6x increase. So basically, that that's how much value growth there is, there are left in these media values, is is their basic assumption. You know, you can make bull and bear cases, and in fact, I think Morgan Stanley does. Uh, but 1.5x, and I think that's a fair, I think I, I would agree with that. I think when I when I did my estimate, I assumed a 1.5x. So, Current AAV for Raw and SmackDown combined is $470 million a year. That's just in the US. That's that's how much money they're getting for a year on average across this five-year deal for Raw and SmackDown. $470 million. Let's put that in some perspective. Uh, New Japan's best revenue year before the pandemic was about 40, I think about 50 million dollars in, in in US dollars. This is just the just W's raw and smackdown deal is worth 10 times New Japan's best year ever. So anyway, if we multiply that amount by one and a half times, we get to $705 million per year. Remember, W just just registered $1 billion in a year. So um, imagine how if if that comes to fruition, or if imagine they get an even bigger multiple on their media rights values, you know, it, it's not inconceivable to think that this company could pull in a billion dollars just in U S rights. If they got a really favorable multiple, if there was a lot of competition for this, as, as Nikon continues to hype about how streaming platforms are going to need live sports. They're going to need our, our live content. They're going to need our IP. So everybody's going to be bidding, bidding for us. We'll see. Um, we'll see. And then.
5: Yeah. So now we have WWE revenue by geography uh, and, and, this is pretty much how's international business. We talked a lot about uh, domestic, you know, business here, but how is the international business in, you know, Europe and Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, Latin America, and, you know, North America when it comes to, like Mexico and Canada.
0: Yes. So this is looking back from 2016 to the present. Uh, w updated this with their, their latest annual report. And we see that 80% of W's revenue is from North America, mostly from the U S and, uh, We have this bulge in the middle from Europe, Middle East, Africa that starts in 2018. And then when, when the new TV deals go into effect, it, 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 the bulge kind of goes away, but the, but the dollar amount uh, does go away in 2020 because there were, there wasn't, there weren't, uh, there was just one Saudi event. So that, that increase is, is from the Saudi events and that will, uh, that will, that will grow in future years. I, I, you know one thing that uh that Nick Khan mentioned in his interview with Colin Coward around WrestleMania time is that he sees Latin America he sees Mexico as this big opportunity for them because there's look at there's there's a wrestling market there uh and look at 1% and this is not even if you go back before the pandemic go to go to 2018 go to 2019 1% of the revenue was coming from Latin America i think it also reflects how little money there is relative to other regions how little money there is in tv rights in that region um because I can't imagine what you know what what other money is there they're not they didn't go to Latin America in, in 2020 or 2021 and they're reporting 11 million 12 million dollars so that gives you a pretty clean idea of of the media value that they're extracting there um some of it would be consumer products some merchandise sales I guess and and uh, I, I wonder how how game game uh purchases would even be accounted for there. But probably that's a pretty good reflection of, of the media value in that region for them is something around $10 million. I would think um, just, just for TV TV rights in that region, you know, could compare that to the U S which we just mentioned in a year is 470. India is about $50 million. So there's that. Um, those are all my thoughts. We're not going to do YouTube this week because we're over <laughs> two hours here.
5: I will bring up Timby's super chat that he yes, sent yes, earlier. Uh, he goes, are there any recent sec filings pertaining to Shane McMahon's compensation? And he says, asking for a friend who thinks he might be showing up on Wednesday.
0: Um, I tweeted this, uh, earlier this week. So we will get an update on Shane McMahon's compensation and on Paul of X compensation and Stephanie's compensation and Nick's compensation. Uh, Vince, Vince is new son, Nick, uh, We'll get an update on that in it. It took them all the way to April to file that uh, last year. So it could be as late as April, but usually that, that, so I'm talking about the proxy statement. The proxy statement has come out uh, in March or even February in, in other years. So Shane is not an executive. He's not an employee. According to those proxy statements, he has not been an, an employee or had any corporate role in WWE since he left WWE in his corporate role in 20, uh, in 2009. Um, and he, what, what gets disclosed is his compensation as a performer. Um, and I'm looking for the excerpt that I tweeted, uh, the other day. So we have it here. If I drop it into here, will it appear? I think it, how much shares does he, does he still own a large amount of shares? Shane McMahon was given many, many shares. Shane McMahon was given, well, over a million shares, the same as Stephanie has. Shane sold all of his shares by wow. 2014. I think he had two big selling periods one after he left the company and then one uh, in 2014 or so, which I imagine he's invested into his other businesses. Um, but Shane. So just 2014- a
5: talent contract, like anyone else
0: that was Correct. let go. He's not he's not a shareholder anymore I because if he had shares, I believe it would be getting disclosed here in the proxy statement because it had been disclosed in the past when he did have shares. So he has no shares as far as I believe he got eight hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollars as a performer in, in 2020. That was his pay, his pay uh, last two years ago. So we'll get an update on what his pay was in twenty twenty one in a month or two.
5: All right. Um Andrew Zarian, thank you for the super chat. Just saying, fantastic combo. Thank you,
0: thank you. I think I'm going to be talking with Andrew Zarian later today.
5: Yeah, you're you're a busy man, Brandon. Very busy man. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, well, and I think
0: that was was were there MJ super chats that we didn't uh, address yet?
5: Oh no, no, we, we did. He just really wanted that Brandon Ross one <laughs> discussed. So. Okay, I, th- I think we yeah, I think we got we got them all. I'll just do one more scan. But yeah, and I believe we got all the super chats. Yep.
0: Okay. Big plug. uh, As people may may know, I did the pro wrestling industry report that has been completed. That is, if you're a patron, you already have access to it. Just go to patreon.com/slashfussanomics. If you if you don't uh, if if you haven't looked at it yet, uh, you can get access to it by becoming a patron for five dollars a month. Patreon.com/slashfussanomics. Or if you don't want to do the Patreon thing, you can buy it for five ninety nine on Payhip. Um, The link is pinned to the top of the WrestleNomics Twitter account. It'll, it'll If you're listening on audio, we'll put it in the description. Um, so that's that's all. Hit hit the thumbs up because that really helps our algorithm. We have merch at store.postwrestling.com. Thursday, I'll be back with the live TV ratings talk right here on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel. You can make your prediction for what you think the AEW Dynamite demo rating is going to be this week in the Post Wrestling Discord in the WrestleNomics channel. We thank Post Wrestling for being amazing partners. As always, what plugs do you have, Chris
5: Cole? Just check out my other podcast, Rediscovering the Indies, on all your major podcast platforms, RTA Pod on Twitter. Rediscovering the Indies on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, the Our most recent episode was released last week. Dusty Rhodes' Terminal Championship Wrestling. Lots of fun stuff in there, including fake gold dust. Cody Rhodes making his professional wrestling debut as a referee. Uh, but I think wow. my favorite uh, part about it was Dusty Rhodes thinking he was going to get a D- TV deal with Turner South for Terminal Championship Wrestling when Turner clearly had a no-compete clause mm. with WWE to, to have any
0: wrestling. So. Wow. I remember Turner South from uh, Extreme Warfare Revenge.
5: Yeah, well, he, Dusty hosted the uh, classics, the the WCW classic show on there. Interesting. And that was his connection to try to uh, get that deal. And and classics actually aired until, I think, fall of 21,
0: which so is So they could air old content, but they couldn't air new content?
5: Yeah, and I don't know if that was just because that was the end of that deal. But, yeah, I believe, I mean, I could be wrong. I believe it aired till fall of 21, but I could be wrong.
0: Okay. That's all for this week. Thanks to everybody. Two thousand one, I
5: mean, not twenty one two thousand one. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Thanks to everybody for for listening, for tuning in. Thanks to everybody for your super chats. Thanks to, to all of our subscribers on Patreon, of course.
2: Uh see you on Thursday. We'll talk to you at the same place next week.